will be in Leviticus 22 tonight. As you're turning there, um, we have to keep these things in mind. We have to remember as we look at all of the requirements for holiness with the priest, and as we make that comparison to the royal priesthood, we have to remember that we cannot generate holiness in and of ourselves. We just can't do it. And one of the challenges that I've had in going through this book is, is that very thing. It's all these, these great comparisons we can make to the priesthood and the children of Israel and the expectations God had for them. And we begin to start down that path of thinking, okay, I, I can do this. I can handle that. I can wear this. And all the while the Lord is saying, remember, I gave the law so that grace, so that sin might increase. <laughs> so you could see your sins. You would be more aware of it. The reality is the harder I try, the more apparent it is that I can't do these things. And we need to hold on to that. Because that's where legalism can creep in, where self-righteousness and personal piety can begin to overshadow in our own minds, amazing as it sounds, the grace and the wonder and the power of, of God and who He is. So keep that in mind. As we study through any of the Old Testament books especially, that they are driving us toward Jesus and the grace that we need and can find only in Him. That our behavior, our actions, are in response to what God did first. I will say that a million times if I have to. We respond in our works. We respond with our behavior to what God already did. We are already in our salvation. And with thanksgiving and gratefulness and joy, then we work. But not the other way around. Got that? We're all clear? Father, I pray your blessings on the study of your word tonight and just that you would show us what you want us to see. And Father, I just thank you again for Jesus. I thank you that your spirit, Lord Jesus, is here tonight and is our true guide. May we listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Leviticus 22, verse 1 then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell Aaron. Now that's interesting. <laughs> we'll just stop there for a moment. Have you noticed the godly progression of communication throughout this book as we've been setting along? That it always tends to be in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus pertaining to the Levites. That's what Leviticus means. Having to do with or pertaining to the Levites. And Aaron being the first high priest among the Levites. That God constantly is talking to Moses to talk to Aaron. In fact, looking back at only three times in Old Testament Scripture that I can find, three instances where God talks specifically, speaks specifically to Aaron. The rest of the time it's always through Moses. It's always the Lord spoke to Moses, tell Aaron. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron. I'm thinking, well, where's, where's Aaron? God is speaking directly to Moses first and then to Aaron. And these other three times... They're interesting to me because they all speak of something that I, I, I think is worth noting before we go any further tonight. The three times, if you want to jot these down if you're taking notes, the first time that God speaks directly to Aaron is to prompt him. To prompt him. Now Aaron being a priest, remember the, the parallel that we've been drawing that the priesthood of Israel is similar to or teaches us about the priesthood of believers. And so in the way that God speaks to Aaron is very similar to the way that he speaks to us or the reasons that he will speak to us. Number one, to prompt him. To prompt him. Exodus chapter 4 verse 27. 
Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. God put a call on Aaron's heart, but not to do something that Aaron was doing. Interesting, he prompted Aaron to go do something else, to go be involved in what he was doing. I want you to go to your brother. Okay, why? I need you there. Just go. The Spirit of God, God prompted Aaron to go meet Moses in the wilderness because God had put a call on Moses' heart to do something. So Aaron was to go and help Moses. And it reminds me of this great principle for anyone following the Lord. If you truly want to follow the Lord, it's a principle that Henry Blackaby points out in his book, Experiencing God. Look to see what God is already doing and join Him. So often in our lives we say, God, I want you here. I want you doing what I'm doing. I'm engaging in this ministry. I have this idea. I have this great act of service. This is what I'm going to do for you, Lord, and I need your blessing. The better way to do it, look and see what God is already doing and join Him. That's all we did, Cheryl and I. Someone may say, well, didn't you come up with the bright idea of, of starting this church, the Bridge Christian Fellowship? No, I didn't. It wasn't my idea at all. We saw God doing something, and we joined Him. There were prayers going on in this island, many of you know, for three years. There were people praying in other places longer for just such a fellowship as this, in this place, for years. I had no idea. When I moved up to Anacortes in 1999, Cheryl and I, we thought we were moving to Anacortes. And we were for a season. There's something else, and some of you have heard this as well, it just, just freaks me out. That a year before, I heard the call of the Lord to, to come over here and pastor the Bridge Christian Fellowship. A year before that, there was another pastor, Rick. His name was Rick. Which is interesting. His last name started with a C, I think, which is really interesting to me. And this other pastor, Rick, felt a direct call by the Lord to plant a church on North Whidbey Island and call it The Bridge. We found this out, how long, nine months, six months? After we had started The Bridge. Had no idea. God was already doing something. Look at what God is already doing and join Him. See what He's up to. Ask Him, Lord, what are you doing? And you know, you can apply that principle every day of your life. What are you doing today, Lord? Help me to engage, to be involved in what you're doing, even if it means setting aside my schedule. Well, God prompted Aaron. And God will prompt those who have ears to hear, those who will listen. He's going to give a prompting to. He'll show you. If you really are truly interested in what he's up to, he'll prompt you, just like he did Aaron. Second time that we see God speak directly to Aaron, he does it to protect him. To protect him. To protect him. Back in Leviticus chapter 10, after that sin of Nadab and Abihu and the offering of strange fire, we see God speaking directly to Aaron. Not, not at first. At first, Moses goes to Aaron and his other sons and says, Stay in the sanctuary. Don't leave. Don't mess around. Stay here. Do your work. Let the rest of Israel mourn the loss of your sons who have just been killed. You stay put. And then it tells us the Lord. The Lord spoke to Aaron and said... Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. 
it is a perpetual statute throughout your generations and so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane and between the unclean and the clean and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord had spoken to them through Moses now at first you would read this and go that's a little harsh I'm not sure Lord that was the best time for an object lesson (laughs) your Aaron's sons are lying dead they're in the tabernacle fried fired gone And you're talking to Aaron about drinking? About lessons for the children? What's going on here, Lord? And the Lord is protecting Aaron. Now we made this this, uh, comparison before. We talked about this back when we were studying Leviticus 10. I think that the reason why Nadab and Abihu offered the strange fire in the first place was because they had been drinking. They didn't have full control. They weren't thinking about what they were doing. They weren't sharp. They weren't sober. And so the Lord immediately comes in and to protect Aaron says, Keep your wits about you. Be sharp. Stay sober. Don't mess with things that can and will mess you up. And consequently you will be more effective in teaching the Israelites. He's protecting Aaron. Third time that the Lord speaks to Aaron directly is in Numbers chapter 18. We're going to come back to this book in just a minute, Numbers 18. But let me just read you a verse quickly. It tells us the Lord spoke to Aaron. Now behold, I myself have given you charge of my offerings. Even all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, I have given them to you as a portion, and to your sons as a perpetual allotment. Verse 21 of Numbers chapter 18, he says, To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform the service of the tent of meeting to provide. It's an amazing chapter as the Lord goes through and talks about what he provides for Aaron and for his family. So the Lord prompts Aaron to engage in what he's already doing. He protects Aaron and his sons against dreadful mistakes and he provides magnificently for Aaron and his family, the Levites. Now, as I said before, remember, we've been making comparisons between the priesthood of Israel and the priesthood of all believers. I believe, as with Aaron, that the Lord speaks to the priesthood of believers today in similar ways. He prompts us to follow after him, to do what he's doing. He protects us against our own foolishness or Satan's folly. He provides for us and for our families. And God spoke directly, verbally, audibly to Aaron in these three ways. But notice this. In every other instance, he spoke to Aaron through another, through Moses. With the exception of the three places we just looked at, the line of communication always goes from the Lord to Moses and then to Aaron. Why is that? Number four, to point toward a prophet. To point toward a prophet. Flipping your Bibles over to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Fifth book. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Why does God keep going through Moses to Aaron? Why not just directly to Aaron again? He is pointing toward a prophet. Moses, who is considered Israel's greatest prophet, is himself a picture or type of another prophet. A greater prophet who was to come. Verse 15 of chapter 18. 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. You may remember the children of Israel gathered around Mount Horeb. They heard God rumble from the mountain. They saw the fire. They were scared to death. And they said, Don't talk to us anymore. Talk to Moses. <laughs> they weren't concerned about him. Just themselves. Don't talk to us, Lord. You talk to him and let him tell us what you want to say. We can't handle this. And I love what God says, verse 17. He said, The Lord said to me, Moses says this, The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks the word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not, or you shall, yeah, you shall not be afraid of him. Another prophet, a greater prophet, one who would be greater than Moses. Moses, of all the prophets of Israel, was the greatest. Elijah was great. But you ask a Jewish person even today and they will say Moses is the man. Moses and Elijah, but Moses. He's most favored. He's the greatest prophet. He's the one that we look to above all others. And Moses himself said, God's going to raise up one better than me. One greater than me. Now, something that's Israel, uh, Israel. Interesting, Islam specifically claims that this passage of scripture speaks of the prophet Muhammad. They will go to this passage in Deuteronomy 18 and say, that's Muhammad, this other prophet. This is directly, it's got to be Muhammad. Problem is, God says, this prophet, Moses says, this prophet will be like me from among you, from your countrymen, from Jews. There will be a Jewish prophet greater than me, a man who comes through the line of the Jews, a Hebrew like me, who will speak and who will be a greater prophet than I am. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. He is the exact representation of the Lord Everything Jesus does, everything he says, everything he prays, the way he acts, the way he behaves, that's God. The exact representation. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. So Aaron and sons are the priests, representing in type the royal priesthood of believers. But Moses portrays the prophet the mediator, Jesus Christ, who himself intercedes for us. Now, go back to Leviticus chapter 22 
and continue to consider this middle comparison of the priesthood of Israel and the priesthood of all believers as we read through the rest of chapter 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicate to me. So as not to profane my holy name, I am the Lord. Say to them, if any man among all your descendants throughout all your generations approaches the holy gifts which the sons of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he, is in an un- while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from before me. I am the Lord. No man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper or who has a discharge may eat of the holy gifts until he is clean. And if one touches anything made unclean by a corpse, or if a man has a seminal omission, or if a man touches any teeming things by which he is made unclean, or any man by whom he is made unclean, whatever his uncleanness, a person who touches any such shall be unclean until evening. And listen, shall not eat of the holy gifts unless he has bathed his his body in water. But when the sun sets, he will be clean. And afterward he shall eat of the holy gifts, for it is his food. He shall not eat an animal which dies or is torn by beasts, becoming unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge, so that they will not bear sin because of it, and die thereby, because they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Now all of this stuff that we just read has been covered in previous chapters. The uncleanness of leprosy, the uncleanness of touching dead things, and on through. And you can find all of this in things that we've already studied. God is now reminding the priests of something very important. Anything, anything that is given or dedicated to the Lord becomes itself holy. Any gift that comes from Israel to the Lord is considered holy. You may want to jot a few more things down here about gifts because constantly throughout this chapter the holy gift, the holy gift is talked about. The gifts of the children of Israel, first thing to jot down is the gifts themselves. The gifts themselves were to be set apart. If someone brought an animal for sacrifice, if someone brought a a drink offering or a grain offering, it was immediately once given to the Lord, it was holy, it was set apart to the Lord. And this is important and I don't want you to miss this distinction. If you're going to set something apart to the Lord, it's got to be set apart according to what He wants and not according to what you want. And there are times in our lives where we give something to God, but we want to direct where it goes or how it's used. We want to maintain some semblance, some uh, amount of control over gifts that we give to God. God, I want to serve you. I just want to serve you where I live. I want to do what you want. I just want to do it within my schedule. I want to bless you, Lord, but it's got to be my way. I want to give to your church. I want to write a check today, but there's a specific charity that I want to make sure it goes to, Lord. For the Israelites, when they gave to the Lord, they had no control over it or, or shouldn't have. It was set apart to God's use. I want you to see an interesting story. Flip over to Judges chapter 17. Judges, if you ever just want to sit home some night and freak yourself out, read the book of Judges. It's one of the most difficult books in the Bible to understand because it is so laden with sin. One character after another, one story after another through the book of Judges. Some of the most horrendous things that happened in the history of Israel are talked about in the book of Judges. This isn't as horrendous as many, but it's still an interesting situation. Judges chapter 17, 
verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Now this is not Micah the prophet. This is another guy named Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver which were taken from you, uh, you remember the ones about which you uttered a curse in my hearing? Um, <laughs> behold, the silver's with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. What's happening is this guy Micah stole eleven hundred pieces of silver from his mom. And when she found the silver missing, she freaked out and she uttered a curse against whoever it was who stole it. So now he's thinking, uh oh, I've been cursed. So he says, Mom, it was me. It's my fault. I'm sorry. I took the silver. And of course, being the good non disciplinary mother that she was, she said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And then he returned, verse 3, the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord. Listen, I dedicate this. These 1,100 pieces of silver that you stole, but you gave back, it's God's. I'm giving it to the Lord. I dedicate it to the Lord. For my son to make a graven image and a molten image, now therefore I will return them to you. She gives it back to her son and says, okay, here, take this, take the 1,100 piece of silver. I'm dedicating it to the Lord. And she does mean, by the way, Yahweh, Jehovah, I'm dedicating it to him. Let's make an idol. That'll make him happy. Someone missed the Ten Commandments. Someone didn't read Exodus 20 verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. By the way, listen carefully. In Christianity, God doesn't want representations even of himself. Even things that are supposed to be him. He says don't do it because you're not going to get it right. How in the world is a statue going to compare? You can't do it. Second commandment. It's commands against any idols, even idols made for the Lord. This woman wants to give something to the Lord, dedicate something to the Lord. A molten, graven image. Tells us in verse 4, So he returned the silver to his mother, and his mother took 200 pieces of the silver, and gave them to the silversmith, who made them into a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols, and consecrated one of his sons, that he might become his priest. In those days, and this is why, by the way, in those days, and this is the great line throughout the book of Judges, in those days... There was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's what happens when there's no king. When there's no Lord, when there's no authority, when there's no Jesus in your life, we just do right in our own eyes. Which is exactly what Micah and his ma are doing here. They dedicate the silver to the Lord. But what's interesting about this graven image, this molten image, the words here, is probably not talking about two idols, but one idol. The word graven is the Hebrew word pasel, and it means carved. And the word molten, for molten image, is the word maseka, and it literally means poured. So what we're talking about here is a wooden or carved idol that then was overlaid in silver. Well, what's the big deal? Well, it points to another image. And in fact... Um, Kyle and Delich, who are a couple of uh, just brilliant Bible commentators, they even believe and they point to good reason to believe that this image was in fact a calf. It was a calf. Because all the way back at Mount Sinai, with the story of the golden calf, now this would be a silver calf, 
all the way from Sinai forward, just about every time, the people of Israel made an image that they dedicated to Jehovah. They made a calf. You may remember, but the, the making of the golden calf, the molten calf, the people made that calf as a dedication to the Lord. The calf was supposed to be, according to the Israelite mind, back there at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the calf was supposed to be an idol for Jehovah. They weren't trying to make a calf an idol of something else. They were trying to represent God. And they were looking for something strong and sturdy. Something that had life to it. And they chose the calf. And that would continue to plague the people of Israel, especially, especially the tribe of Dan down through the years. And the tribe of Dan, we come to find out at the end of the Bible, loses their allotment in the millennial kingdom because of their clinging to idols. To idols. Amazing. What's the point? If something is given to the Lord, it is to be set apart to be used God's way and not man's way. Not man's representation of God, but what God wants to be done. Now, with all that being said, is it possible for us, spiritually, to misrepresent the Lord with a gift? Can I misrepresent the Lord with a gift? Hold that thought. The second thing to jot down here, the gifts themselves were not only to be set apart to the Lord, they were also to be shared among the Levites. The gifts were not just for the Lord, but they were shared with the Levites, with the priests. The offerings of Israel were both for sacrifice and for sustenance. This was God's way to take care of the priests. The people would bring their animals for offering, and some of the meat was burned up on the altar, some of it went to the Lord, some was taken home by the Levites to their families for dinner. The grain that was offered, some of it was offered to the Lord, some of it was taken home and eaten by the Levites and their families as food. It's how God provided for His royal priesthood godly generosity. Now look at Numbers. We're going to flip around a little bit tonight, jumping around. Numbers chapter 18. I want you to see this for yourselves. Numbers 18 and verse 8. The portion that God gives to the priests of Israel, it's amazing. He says, Numbers chapter 18, verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron. Now behold, this is one of those three times he talks directly to Aaron. I myself have given you charge of my offerings. Even all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel I have given them to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual allotment. This shall be yours from the most holy gifts reserved from the fire. Every offering of theirs, even every grain offering, and every sin offering, and every guilt offering which they shall render to me shall be most holy for you and for your sons. As the most holy gifts, you shall eat it. Every male shall eat it. It shall be holy to you. This is also yours. The offering of their gift, even all the wave offerings of the sons of Israel, I've given them to you and to your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. Every one of your household who is clean may eat it. All the best, verse 12 is great, all the best of the fresh oil and all the best of the fresh wine and of the grain, the first fruits of those which they give to the Lord, I give them to you. The first ripe fruits of all that is in their land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. Every one of your household who is clean may eat it. Verse 14, every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Skipping on down to verse 21, again, to the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance. You see, Israel had to give 10% of everything to the Lord. 
everything, 10% was brought to the tabernacle, and that 10% God directly handed right over to the Levites. Just gave it right to them. Shared it with them. Godly generosity. Divine distribution. But with the generosity came an expectation. He said, I'm sharing with you what's set apart to me. Therefore, number three, the priest must see to the gifts with holiness. If you're going to eat these things, you've got to be clean. If you're going to handle these things, you've got to do so in a holy way. Now, I asked before. I'll go ahead and tell you to flip in your Bibles over to 1 Peter. But I asked before this question. Is it possible to misrepresent the Lord with a gift? Now, make the transition from priests of Israel receiving the gifts from the people to the royal priesthood of believers. We receive our gifts directly from the Lord. What kinds of gifts do we receive from the Lord? Paul calls them spiritual gifts. Is it possible with this in mind to misrepresent the Lord with a gift? Is it possible to mishandle the gifts which the Lord shares with me? When you read of the holy gifts given to the priesthood of Israel, what might speak of for the priesthood of believers? What might this say to us? 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse 7. The end of all things, Peter says, is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Verse 10, watch. Each one, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Any gift, Peter says, any gift that is not used for the purpose of bringing glory and honor to God the Father over and above any priest or believer is misused. We can, in fact, mishandle the gifts. The spiritual gifts that the Lord gives to us. We can treat them in, a, in an, an unholy manner. How do you treat a spiritual gift in an unholy manner? Anytime a spiritual gift glorifies me, it's unclean. It is unholy. It is inappropriate. For the spiritual gifts, uh, spiritual gifts are really used for a couple of things. First off, they're used to build up the body of Christ. To build up the body. God gives the gifts to the body to build up the body. Paul says in Ephesians 4.11, He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and evangelists, and pastors, and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That's what the gifts are for. To build up the body. To share with the body. To encourage the body. But... Paul also says, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? Well, before I answer the question why, listen again to what Paul just said. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. If you're a believer in Christ, God has a gift for you. 
I think some Christians haven't accepted or embraced the gift. God's standing there holding it out going, I've got a gift for you. I have a gift. Would you like a gift? We're too busy, you know, doing it our way. God's going, but I've, I've got a gift. Would you like a gift? How many of us would turn down a gift? And yet people do all the time. But Paul says each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. The gifts are not for the elevation of the individual. They are for the body and they are abused if used otherwise. They are there to build up the body, but they're also there, gang, to lift up the name of Christ. To build up the body of Christ, but to lift up the name of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We don't preach ourselves. We're not about elevating ourselves. We don't want the world to see us. We want the world to see Jesus. We want the world to experience the power of the Spirit, not the power of the person wielding the power of the Spirit. Is it possible to misuse a gift? Oh yeah. Very possible. And it happens all the time. Proverbs chapter 25 verse 14. I love this verse. Just found it this week. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. Paul would say, don't let anybody bother me. If I boast in anything, I I boast in Jesus. I bear on my body, he says, Galatians chapter 6, I bear on my body the brand marks of Christ. That's where my boasting is. If I'm going to be foolish and boast at all, it's going to be in the grace of Jesus, in the power of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, not in myself and not even in what he does in me. And God gives us gifts. And as Les says from time to time, when the praises come, duck down and let the glory go right on up to the Father. I like that. The gifts set apart to the Lord, shared among the priesthood of believers who must see to the gifts with holiness and gain any good gift that you bring. Any gift that you bring, you bring to the Lord. Back to Leviticus chapter 22, verse 10. He goes on and says, No layman... That's literally stranger. No stranger, however, is to eat the holy gift. A sojourner with the priest or a hired man shall not eat of the holy gift. Now I'm going to say something that may rankle the seeker-driven mentality in the church today. The food of God is not for the outsider. The food of God is not for the outsider. For the stranger. For the sojourner. For the hired person. For the person that is not there to seek the Lord. The food of God is not for the outsider. What do you mean? Let me explain. Jesus said this way. He said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, Do not give what is holy to dogs. And do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you to pieces. Now God's not calling anyone a pig or a dog here. But Jesus is making a clear declaration that there will be those who do not understand your gifts. There will be people who don't get the spiritual gifts, who are frightened by them, who who don't clue in to what they're about, to how they're for the body, to how they build up the body, to how they're used for the common good. And in fact, gang, there are some gifts which I personally believe are not to be practiced any old place at any old time. Let me give you an example. You can flip on the TV. And I'm not going to say his name, but it rhymes with Hilton. There's a a, a guy who's on the TV. 
a preacher, televangelist, and he will, as he's talking to the camera, to the people, suddenly break into tongues. Just start speaking in tongues while he's talking to the television audience. Just, he'll just go off. And I've seen this before, and you may disagree, you may be a big fan. Bless you. But every time I watch this guy, I just sit there and think, I, who is this for? Who is it for? Who are the tongues for? He'll be saying, yes, and if you'll grab that prayer cloth that I mailed you that you sent me $1,000 for, boy, just hang on to that, and we'll pray Honda Suzu. And then you know, he starts to go off in tongues. And I don't know about you, but when I watch that, my spirit says, uh-uh-uh. It's not a use of the gift that's appropriate. It's elevating the man. It's making the man look like he's got something special. He's got something to give. Man, give this guy your money because he's got something that I need. He's got a power. Wow, this is wonderful. Gang, there's a right place and there's a wrong place for using the gifts. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. Unfortunately, a lot of times in the church, when it comes to spiritual gifts, the right way is not even dealt with because they're so afraid of the wrong way. Oh no, we're going to do it wrong, so let's not do it at all. That's not right either. A right place, a wrong place. A right way, a wrong way. But whatever you think or understand about the spiritual gifts, understand this. They are for the glory of God the Father. And they are to be used in a holy way, a way that builds up the body or or glorifies the Lord, lifts up the name of Christ. Some have asked me, Rick, why have you limited certain times of prayer that we've had we've had two or three different times just recently where we've had prayers for the body why have you limited that just to those who claim the British Christian Fellowship as their home fellowship and I'll tell you why two reasons number one it limits the strange fire limits the strange fire if there's a sense of knowing everybody who's there there's less threat of the wrong way being exercised at the wrong time even if it is in the right place but the second reason the second reason is it makes these times of sharing about building up the body. Lifting up the name of the Lord and not about us. It's never about the elevation of ourselves. Well, back to it. Verse 11. Now if a priest buys a slave as his property with his money, that one may eat of it. By the way, God is not saying that slavery is okay in this verse. He is acknowledging this is what went on in the culture early on before they had some greater sense of morality. It was something that went on, and you will see later in this book. In fact, he closes out this book with the Jubilee, which, which was the freeing of all slaves at a particular time, consistently, so that someone couldn't be a slave forever. But he says, he makes allowance for this right here. If a priest buys a slave as his property with his money, that one may eat of it. In other words, the slave of the priest who has purchased the, the indentured servant could also eat of the holy things if he was in the priest's household. That one may eat of it. And those who are born in his house, even those who are born of his sons or daughters or, or of, his, um, of his servants, may eat of his food. Verse 12. If a priest's daughter is married to a layman, she shall not eat of the offering of the gifts. Okay, so once someone's married out of the family, she is now cared for over here. She is not under the priest, and so no longer does she uh, eat at the priest's home. But, verse 13, and this is precious, if a priest's daughter becomes a widow or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house as in her youth, 
she shall eat of her father's food, but no layman shall eat of it. In other words, I'm going to take care of her. Something happens to her. She's put out in a divorce. She loses her husband, becomes a widow. She can go home and be cared for in her father's house. I have underlined in my Bible, highlighted actually, the phrase, returns to her father's house as in her youth. And it directly reminds me of the prodigal. The prodigal son. Luke chapter 15. What did the father do? Think about this. What did the father do when the son came home? He prepared a feast. He said, kill the fattened calf. He fed his son with the best of the best of the best provisions of the household. And God makes the same provision here for one who is out of the family but comes back into the family. Care for her. Watch after her. Provide for her. Verse 14. But if a man eats a holy gift unintentionally... Then he shall add to it a fifth of it, and shall give the holy gift to the priest. They shall not profane the holy gifts of the sons of of Israel, which they offer to the Lord, and so cause them to bear punishment for guilt by eating their holy gifts. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. I love this because it, it, it would be probably helpful for someone like me. Unintentional, inadvertent sin. Oops kind of stuff. I ate of the stuff and I wasn't supposed to. You know, was that, that bread was baked with grain from, and I ate, uh, oops, <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. I did it in ignorance. And the Lord says, all right, you're not going to just fall down dead. You're not going to die there. I'll, I provide a way for you to take care of this. And he says, you have to add a fifth. A fifth would be a double tithe. So if you ate some of the grain and you weren't supposed to and you realized that, the way you could make up for it, confess it, receive forgiveness for that, was to add double what you had eaten, a double tithe, two-tenths, as a penalty for the ignorance. And it's interesting, the Lord makes clear that even accidental sin is still sin. Something I've done you know, inadvertently, ignorantly, it's still wrong. Just because I didn't know it was wrong doesn't make it okay. It's still sin. And so he provides for a way for the person to be taken care of. Now, the next few verses here, we shift a little bit of direction to the rest of chapter 22. It turns from the priest's handling of the gifts to the gifts themselves, that is, the animals presented for sacrifice. In verse 17, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel and say to them, Any man of the house of Israel or of the aliens in Israel who presents his offering, whether it is any of their votive, and votive just means vow, is a vow, or any of their free will offerings which they present to the Lord for a burnt offering, for you to be accepted, it must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow, or for a free will offering of the herder of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scab sounds a lot like what we talked about on Sunday. You shall not offer to the Lord nor make of them an offering by fire on the altar of the Lord. So all these different types of animals, these animals with problems, are disqualified. In the same way that the priests were disqualified if they had these similar problems, if you try to bring an animal for an offering, you can't bring it if it has a defect of any kind. 
part of this was because God knew the heart of man and knew probably the Israelites would be looking out in their flocks for the most cheesed up, messed up, problematic little lambs, you know, the ones with three eyes, and, and this one's for the Lord. What? There's a problem? And so God says, you can't bring that. None of the messed up animals, it's got to be an animal without defect. And God again here we see laying a prophetic foundation for the revelation of Jesus Christ who would be a male without defect, the perfect sacrifice. Sacrifice has got to be perfect. Now there is an exception, verse 23 tells us, in respect to an ox or a lamb, which has an overgrown or stunted member. It's interesting. You may present it for a free will offering, but for a vow it will not be accepted. Well, what does this mean? The Lord said you can offer a deformed ox or lamb. Prolonged, like maybe one leg was a little bit longer. And so when they're out in the field, they just continue to go in circles. <laughs> you, know, you could offer that for a free will offering, but not for a vow offering. What's the difference? The free will offering. Well, the vow offering, if you made a vow to the Lord, you had to offer something that didn't have a defect. It had to be perfect, just like all the other offerings. If it was a free will offering, that's different. Because a free will offering is just someone giving from the heart. Someone just saying, I was thinking about the Lord today. God, I was just... You were on my mind and I just wanted to give something. It's not required. Not expected, not based on a vow, no other reason other than just, I just want to give something to the Lord today. A free will offering. And God said, you can offer an animal that has not a defect, but an overgrown or stunted member. You can't, the other defects are still out. But if you have an animal that's got just small problems, it's okay. If, if it's just the overflow of your heart, the free will, you just, you just want to say, Lord, I love you. And I like what Andrew Bonar says about this in his commentary. He says, oh, how different is the free will offering of such an Israelite as this from God's own free will offering of his son. The Lord has measured the narrowness of man's soul. Who had ever measured the unlimited fullness of the mind of God? And Job puts it this way. He says in Job 11 verse 7, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. The mind of God who would say to man, you can give a less than perfect free will offering, but I won't. I won't. I will give the best of the best of the best that I have to give. And Paul says in Ephesians 3.18, he prays that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Man, ever been impressed by your own giving? Ever done something for the Lord you just thought, man, that was good. Man, I really sacrificed on that one. God bless you. <laughs> if you've ever been in that state, gang, think of Jesus. For the best of the best that we have to give, it just pales when you think of the perfection of Christ. When you think of how far God went to give to man in a free will offering. Not something God had to do, something He chose to do because He was overflowing in love for us. Verse 24. Now I'm going to read verse 24 the way it's actually written and not with the um, words that are added. <laughs> also anything bruised or crushed or torn or cut you shall not offer to the Lord or sacrifice in your land. Now that's, that's I'm not skipping over those three words. 
because I don't want to say them, I don't want to say them, but they're actually not even in the original translation. It just says, anything bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord or sacrifice in your land. You, you might say, by the way, looking at verse 24, you might say, why did they add those words? Why did the uh, translators add those three words, and especially that one word that now we're focusing so much on, even though Rick's not saying it? <laughs> Why did the translators do that if it wasn't in there in the first place? Because the words indicate that. That the bruised, crushed, torn, or cut being talked about there has to do with those three words. Okay? God doesn't have a problem with those three words like we do. God doesn't have a problem because as I shared on Sunday, when it comes to that particular area, God sees that as the seat of reproduction. And for God, it's not something that, you know, I mean, in our culture, we just made, oh, we can't say the word. You know, to the Lord, He says, no, anything that's offered to me needs to be able to reproduce. Not because that particular... I mean, it's kind of funny. You may think, well, it's just going to be killed anyway. The lamb. The lamb's just going to die anyway. Who cares if it can reproduce? The principle, gang. The principle is that gifts given to the Lord need to be reproductive. Spiritual gifts. The gifts that God has given us are gifts for the purpose, again, of reproducing. In the building up of the body of Christ... Boy, I hope you don't come to hear teaching here in the barn and go out thinking you're just going to come here more teaching the next week. I hope what happens, I pray what happens, is the teaching spurs you to further Bible study. Drives you deeper into the Word. Makes you curious and wonder so that you're spending more time in the Word. I hope the teaching here reproduces the study in you. I hope the worship reproduces worship in our lives. I hope the fellowship and relationship reproduces that same thing in your lives. I hope when the Holy Spirit is manifest and speaking to us and moving in powerful ways that that is being reproduced. Not just here. Oh man, when are we going to have that next prayer session? Uh, Rick hasn't put one on the calendar lately. What, you can't pray in the Spirit in your home? You can't invite a group of people over and get together and worship the Lord and seek the Spirit? Reproduction. Let what happens here not... What happens here stays here, you know the Vegas thing? No, not here. What happens here goes out the door and gets into the world, into your lives. May it reproduce and may you be infected and affected by what the Lord does. In small amount here, He can do in huge amount in your life. So verse 25, he says, uh, You shall not accept any such from the hand of a foreigner, or the offering, foreign offering is the food of your God, for their corruption is in them. They have a defect, and they shall not be accepted for you. Now again, the comparison here is to the perfection of Christ, a lamb without blemish, capable of reproducing life everlasting. Christ. Now you might say, well, physically Jesus never reproduced. Now the uh, Da Vinci Code claims that he did. Right, claims that he married Mary and they had a child and that went on and, and by the way we'll talk about that in, in a few weeks here um, right about the time the movie comes out it may coincidentally be talked about on a Sunday <laughs> the Da Vinci Code talks about Jesus physically reproducing Dang, he never did he never married he was never with a woman but look at the reproduction 
since Jesus left the earth. He told his apostles, hey, if I, if I go away, it's better for you. What? Better for us? Wouldn't it be better if Jesus was just still here? No, because there would only be one of him in one spot, located, limited on planet earth. But because he went away, his spirit now is among all believers and now doing what he wants to do everywhere, reproduction. The lamb, the ox, that is capable of reproduction but is killed in a sacrifice just like the precious lamb of God who through his sacrifice reproduced in massive ways that Satan and the world could not possibly have guessed. 1 Peter 1.19 You were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. Greater than anything, by the way, that we might give to the Lord is always what the Lord gave to us, Jesus Christ, who at this holiday season or any other is the perfect gift. Verse 26. We're going to stop at 28 tonight. I have one more thing to share with you here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother. And from the eighth day on, on it, it uh, and from the eighth day on, it shall be accepted as a sacrifice of an offering by fire to the Lord. And whether it is an ox or a sheep, you shall not kill both it and its young in one day. Okay, last couple of things here. There are two final ways in which the sacrifice was preserved as a picture of Jesus. The perfect gift. First way is the seven days. The seven days. Why did they have to wait? When a little lamb was born, God proclaimed, you got to wait at least seven days, and then on the eighth day, from that day forward, that lamb can be offered as a sacrifice, can be given to the Lord. A child who was born, it had to wait seven days, and then on the eighth day could be circumcised as an offering to the Lord, and then redeemed, given back to the family. You had to wait seven days. Why seven days? It's that number in the Bible that speaks of completion. Completion. Now this is a little mind-blowing, so you're going to have to listen real closely here. Luke chapter 2, verse 40. tells us the child, speaking of Jesus, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. Luke says in verse 52 of the same chapter, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now these two verses set some people back. Wait a minute. God with us, Emmanuel. God became one of us. He became flesh, became like us, became human, but increased in wisdom? Was there a point in Jesus' life when he didn't know he was Messiah? Some would say so. I would disagree. Was there a point in Jesus' life when he was less than when he was later? Did Jesus grow up? I mean, we know he did physically, but I'm talking spiritually. Wasn't he always both God and man, 100% man, 100% God? Then how in the world can he increase in wisdom and increase in stature? Was God maturing? Well, if that freaks you out, turn to Hebrews chapter 5. This will really freak you out. Hebrews chapter 5. See, I tricked you. I said I just had a couple more things. Now we're going to another passage. No, it won't take long. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. The reason I want you to turn here, by the way, is because you may want to notate some things in your Bibles that you can 
track later on if someone ever brings this verse up and you go, oh, I don't know. You'll already have it here, okay? Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 tells us in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from his death. And he was heard because of his piety. It's speaking of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Speaking of the garden on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Jesus pouring out in prayers and tears. And it's interesting, it says he was heard. He was heard. He still went through the crucifixion, but you may remember that Jesus in the garden was attended to by angels. The Father still cared for His Son, still took care of Him all the way up to the cross. It was only on the cross that Jesus was alone. But in the garden He was heard. But going on, it says this, verse 8. Although He was a Son, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. And, listen to this line, having been made perfect... He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation, being designated designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. A word and a phrase that are just hard to swallow here if you believe, as I believe, that Jesus was divine from the moment He uttered His first cry as an infant. If Jesus was God and man 100% the whole time, how could He have learned obedience? And why does it say, having been made perfect, as if He wasn't perfect before? This is very important in its translation stuff. Get this down. The word learned. The word learned in the Greek is manthanyo. Manthanyo, and it literally means understood. Understood, which would read this way. Although he was a son, he understood obedience from the things which he suffered. What do you mean? When God calls you to obey, guess what? He knows what he's asking. He went through it. He experienced the role. He shed his mantle of glory in heaven and becoming a man, walking as a human like us, he understood what it meant to obey. He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't experienced or done himself. So he understood obedience from the things which he suffered. He understood that to follow the Father and to only speak the words of the Father and to do the will of the Father was going to cause pain. He understood that obeying as he was going to ask us to do was hard. Could result in persecution. Might be frustrating. He understood Learn, understood. Jesus understood these things. Montano is the word. The next phrase, verse 9, having been made perfect is not a phrase at all. It's a single word in the Greek. It's teleao. Teleao, which is from the root word teleos, which means complete. 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 Not having been made perfect, it would literally read, and completed, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, which actually makes more sense. He completed the work God called him to. He completed that which God sent him to complete. He perfected it. The whole thing came to a culmination at the cross. Everything that Jesus was to do, everything he was called to do, He was not made perfect. He was completed, completing God's plan for humanity. He fully accomplished everything in the right time. And so going back, again now, going back to Leviticus 22, wait seven days. The number of completion. 
The number of completions, not the number of perfection in the Bible gang, it's the number of completion. That all things are completed in seven days. And so the Lord says, wait seven days until the Lamb is complete. And then it can be offered on uh, the altar of sacrifice. Jesus lived a complete life. Yes, he died when he was 33 years of age. No, he was never married. No, he never had children. No, he never experienced grandchildren. No, he didn't do some of the things that I've done in the last eight years of my life since I was 33. So, from my perspective, I might say, well, how can you say he lived a complete life? Because he fulfilled everything, completed everything that he came to do. His is the ultimate complete life. Gang, there are people who have grandkids whose lives are completely incomplete. There are people who have lived years and years and years and seen all kinds of things, traveled the world, but they're incomplete. Jesus was 100% complete and completed everything God called him to do in those 33 years. He lived long enough to taste the world's sorrows as a man. He lived long enough to, to open out the law and prove by the law his perfect, sinless, righteous nature. He lived long enough to draw the world to him as he was lifted up. He was not sacrificed before his life was complete. And so no lamb was to be sacrificed before living at least seven days, picturing, again, the complete fulfillment of Christ's life. Last thing, and I want you to consider this and go home on this one tonight. Verse 28 tells us the priests were never to, con- to kill both the parent animal and its young on the same day. Never kill Bell and the calf on the same day. You aren't to kill them both. Now some have said, well that verse is because it's the cruelty factor. It would be cruel to kill them both on the same day. I disagree. I think it's more cruel the other way around. Because I heard Bell's bellowing. She can put it at Bell, Bell, bellowing. She was out there, and when her calf was taken, and I just want you to think for a moment how bloodthirsty the Gilmores truly are. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I love a hamburger like anybody else. But Belle was out there. And the calf was taken from her. And all day, like, shut up. You know, kill them both in the same day. We'd all be better off. But even an animal, even a dumb animal like Belle. Oh, I know she's cute, but she's dumb. Even a dumb animal like Belle reacts, responds when her child is taken from her. Has a reaction. Something's not right. Is upset by this. Dumb animals know when their child is taken from them. And God says the same thing here. You don't kill mother and child. You don't kill the parent animal and the child in the same day. No, you take the child from the parent that remains alive. Do you see the picture here? How would it be, parents, if your child was taken from you and killed? How would you react? I have a hard time just watching that on the news when a child is kidnapped, taken from mom or dad, and murdered. How much more so the father who gave up his son the Father on the day and we focus so much when we think about the crucifixion we really dial in on Jesus and we should and we think about Him and the pain and the sorrow and the agony that He went through what about the Father? What was God feeling? What was He dealing with? 
the bleedings of the tender lamb in its parent's ear as it was taken from the fold filling the air with sadness represented the bleedings of the lamb who was led to the slaughter who cried out Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani which means my God, my God why have you forsaken me? We look at Jesus we think about Jesus and the pain and the agony that he must have felt when he cried out those words my God, why have you forsaken me? But do we think about the Father who had to hear those words and not respond? And not bellow like a cow losing her young. But remain silent. And remain in those moments distant. No heart has ever broken like the Father's heart. No one in all of history has ever felt the pain that God must have felt on that cruel, horrible day. And yet, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. This whole chapter is about the giving of gifts to the Lord. But no gift compares to the gift the Father gave. And Father, we thank You for that gift and we praise You for it. Oh Lord... We will worship you through eternity for that gift. The gift of giving up your son. Of allowing him to go through all of the punishment and pain and judgment. All of the trial, the persecution that I deserve, Lord. That we deserve, that we have earned in our lifetime. Father to allow Jesus to go through that and to stand by knowing that it was the only way to save us God we glorify you Jesus we praise you as the son taken from the father Father we praise you as the father who would not save his son because you had planned to save us what amazing love what outrageous grace Father And may you be praised and upheld and lifted up and honored through all eternity as the only one who truly gave of his own free will. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.